four months of widespread fighting in Sudan is degenerating into another devastating civil war. It is an historically rooted way of saying the land where darker skinned people inhabit the Nile as compared to those in the north in Egypt. And so Sudan is very ethnically diverse, right? Where there are over an estimated 500 different ethnic groups, right? Wow. Yes. Within Nubia, we know that women played a very important role, right? Um, is this pre-Islam? Uh, correct, yes. Yeah. We know that historically, northern Sudanese tended to raid the margins of Sudan, both to the west and places like Darfur, but also way further down south into Central Africa for enslaved people. Kush has been increasingly appropriated in South Sudan, which is beyond oh. what the literal borders of ancient Kush were, right? Oh, that's wild. So it wasn't Kush even there. A very central part in South Sudanese nationalism is to enact what has been known as the Southern policy. And the Southern policy set in motion legally prohibitions where Southerners and Northerners could not freely travel between North and South without permission. British Imperial Christendom, that Islam was Christendom's primary foe, right? And Sudan, I have always ah. said, you know, and this might be controversial, but I think it works at least as a kind of pop culture reference. The Sudanese Mahdi was in some ways the late Victorian version of Osama bin Laden. Nuance is so important. And I think that, you know, the reason why podcasts like this are so needed is because I think that Sudan in the Western imagination predominantly means one thing, right? Yeah. We see death, civil wars, famine, chaos, yeah. coups, right? Sudan, like all places, is much more than that. Did you know that from 1899 to 1956, Sudan was a condominium of Britain and Egypt? And I'm not using the term condominium as opposed to being a single-family residence. No. You see, in international law, a condominium is a political territory over which multiple sovereign powers agree to share power equally. But as my guest in this episode explains, <laughs> that wasn't the case in Sudan. Sudan was effectively the colony of a colony, which in practice meant that Egypt paid and Britain ruled. Hey there, news peelers. Today is July 21st, 2023, and this is Adele, your host at the History Behind News podcast. Aren't you tired of the repetitive news on TV and social media? They just go over the same dramatized developments all day long. Do you ever wonder what happened before our news? I mean, how do we get here? They say if you don't know your history, you're bound to repeat it. So while others cover the news, I uncover its history. I call this peeling the history behind news, which we accomplish in weekly conversations with distinguished scholars who delve deep into history to give us their fascinating perspectives from our past. 
I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee, or your favorite drink, or both, and let's get into it. According to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, Sudan is on the brink of a full-scale civil war, the consequences of which may be calamitous. Destabilizing a wide region, including the Horn of Africa and parts of the Middle East. Sudan itself is in a state of disaster. In a country of less than 50 million, about 3 million people have been displaced from their homes. There are many reports of indiscriminate killings, mass graves, and towns razed to the ground in Darfur, where the violence is morphing into its new horrifying phase of ethnic war. As a reminder, Darfur is a region already ravaged by decades of genocidal atrocities. I could talk about the different factions involved in this bloody conflict and give you their names and the names of their leaders, names that we will all soon forget in the barrage of all the other news we process. But when it comes to talking about Sudan and many other countries about which we woefully know very little, I think it helps to give some depth and dimension to the news in kind of different ways, ways that help us understand the human face of Sudan. We do that already with other countries, such as Ukraine. We appreciate Ukraine's complicated history in relation to the Ottoman Empire, Poland, and Imperial Russia. We know its complex religious influences, from Islam in the south to Russian Orthodoxy to the east and Catholicism to the west. We know its language, its identity, and some familiar stories about its culture. I think you get the picture. And the case of Sudan is no different. It's a complicated country with a rich history, some of which will be familiar to us, is familiar to us. For example, what if I tell you that Sudan's history and its civilization have been inspirational for African Americans? In fact, many prominent African Americans have traveled there, like Al Sharpton, like Malcolm X, and others still. Although they have traveled to distinctly different regions of the Sudan, they have made the journey for the same purpose for what Sudan's civilization and history represent. A long history of kingdoms and powerful queens, a vibrant crossroads between the variety of distinct cultures in Africa's east and west, and the different races and colors of peoples, black and white, from south to north, and between Islam and Christianity. Basically, Sudan has been a veritable melting pot for centuries. In this episode, my guest, Dr. Christopher Townsville of University of Washington, takes us through this rich history, and he personalizes the story for us by telling us why Sudan is important to him as an African-American. Dr. Townsville is an historian of modern Sudan, with special focus on race and religion as political technologies. His first book, published in 2021, is titled Chosen Peoples, Christianity and Political Imagination in South Sudan. It's a book that we discuss here, and I begin the discussion by asking him, what he exactly means by political imagination. His answer opens a window to twists and turns of history, which caught him by surprise as he was writing his dissertation on Sudan's history. Dr. Townsville is now working on his second book, which is titled Bounds of Blackness, African Americans, Sudan, and the Politics of Solidarity. As you will note, he's very excited to tell us about this upcoming book, and I'm very excited to be the first podcast host with whom he shares it. To learn more about Dr. Townsville, you can visit his academic homepage 
the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Townsville and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. Townsville, it's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Thank Let's... you for having me. My pleasure. Uh, let's begin with some foundational questions here. Uh, from time to time, we hear people, including experts, refer to Sudan as the Sudan. Why is that? And and prior, before we started, uh, I, I said this, I sort of think of Ukraine, where some people say the Ukraine, and Ukrainians bristle at that. They rather have their country be called Ukraine. Sure. Yeah. So it's a great question. Um, so Sudan colloquially um, in Arabic has long been understood to mean the land of the blacks, right? Oh, so we're talking okay. about the Sudan. It is kind of an historically, um, um, it is an historically rooted way of saying the land where darker skinned people inhabit the Nile as compared to those in the north in Egypt. Um, Which is called the lower Nile? Is that, uh... Exactly. Yeah. I um, see. I see. And so um, there's a way, though, that even that term, the Sudan, is a little bit misdirected um, because the term originally was used to refer to the fertile black soil. And then extrapolated to mean the people. <laughs> so, oh, interesting. Um, yeah, but um, at the end of the day, Sudanese themselves, at least the nation state, refers to the country as the Sudan. So, from my perspective, if the nation state has appropriated the, then I will be fine using the. <laughs> That's fine. So they don't bristle that they're not offended. So right. the Sudan, I see. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about the people of Sudan. Who are they? Absolutely. Um, and so this is actually one of the best questions I love to answer because it is very ambiguous, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. People don't know whether to play Sudan in North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, the Horn of Africa. It's kind of at this really interesting crossroads um geographically is in the middle of all those right exactly yeah. yeah um so the population is roughly 50 million people right um and it is really a cultural melting pot right i would like to maybe compare the sudan to kind of the american analog might be louisiana right where you've got generations of mixing right um, Interesting. You've got people who identify as as black, as African, as Arab, right? Um, Arabic and English are the official languages, right? Um, the predominantly um, religion that is practiced is Sunni Islam, right? Although there is a small Christian minority. Um, if I may interrupt it, you for a moment, you said sure. Christian minority. All the talk that we've had for the last two minutes about the Sudan, it's the Sudan. We're not talking about South Sudan, which itself we'll, we'll get to in a different segment, but that, that could add a whole different dimension or wrinkle to this, right? Exactly. Okay. Yes. We're on the same page. Go ahead, please. Continue. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, and so Sudan 
is very ethnically diverse, right? Where there are over an estimated 500 different ethnic groups, right? Wow. Um, so, wow. yeah. So, um, so it is kind of most generally speaking, it is racially black and Arab, but it is ethnically much more um, heterogeneous, right? Um, and historically, I will say that when we're talking about, you know, who are the Sudanese, um, there has been a very strong historical affiliation with the Arab and Islamic world. Um, Sudan joined the Arab League shortly after it became independent in 1956. Um, and when the Organization of Islamic Cooperation was founded in 1969, Sudan joined the same year. Um, so there is definitely a way in which it is um, it has historically kind of aligned itself um, with Arab and Islamic identity. Um, two clarifying follow up questions, if I may, please. When you say 500 ethnic groups, do they speak different languages? Do they practice different religions? If not now, at least in the past. Um, the short answer is yes, right? Um, wow. But there is a way in which um, um, Arabic is still the most widely spoken language, right? And so you'll have people who are definitely multilingual, right? And even when we're talking about the Arabic language, right, it's this, the same script, but it is not necessarily the exact same spoken Arabic as in places like Cairo. Um, and I learned oh. this part way because um, I took an Arabic language course at the American University in Cairo thinking that it might, you know, help prepare me um, for, for my travels <laughs> in the Sudan. And while it did in terms of the script, um, Sudanese Arabic is different from the Arabic spoken in places like Cairo. And so um, but to be that as it may, yes, it is very ethnically diverse. Um, but I think that one can get along just fine if they only speak Sudanese Arabic, right? That could be similar to, uh, someone, um, traveling from, let's say Kazakhstan to the country of Azerbaijan and then to Turkey, where they all speak Turkish. Some of them are very drastically different dialects. The second follow-up question I had is, uh, you know, you said they, they very much, uh, Sudan, this Sudan very much aligns itself with uh, uh, the world of Islam, and you gave examples of their modern uh, affiliations. Historically speaking, do they identify themselves or align themselves with something else? Uh, you know, e Egyptians, for example, have Egypt in the background. Um, Iranians have Persian in the background, and because of that, they distinguish themselves from the Turks and from the Arabs or from the sort of the Indian Hindustani culture, if you will, to the East. Does that translate? Does that carry over to uh, Sudan's case as well? It has to a certain degree, um, mm -hmm. and I can certainly um, expound upon this when we talk about the kind of modern history of um colonialism in the Sudan. Um, mm -hmm. But you definitely have, in some ways, an historical identification with 
Egypt in particular. Um, ah. There's an historian at the University of Pennsylvania, um, Eve Trout Powell, who has used a term with respect to Egypt-Sudan relations that I think maps on quite well, but um, she has called Egypt the colonized colonizer, right? And by that, the idea that the Ottoman Empire and the Union Jack colonized Egypt, but that Egypt throughout its obviously thousands, you know, year long history has had a kind of hegemonic influence over the Sudan. Um, Interesting. That has translated in some ways to some people within Sudan, right? Having a sort of um, allegiance to e Egypt, despite the fact that the relationship historically has been one of kind of, you know, hegemon yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, on yeah. one hand, right? Um, so th there is that, right? Um, but then, right, you, you also have a sense in which Egypt really enters the world stage as an independent nation during the golden age of African decolonization and pan-Arabism, right? And so there's a way in which Sudanese have very much a pride in being both this kind of beacon of African independence, right? And it was until 20. 11 geographically speaking the largest country in africa right yeah yeah um but then very much so you know as i'm sure we'll talk about um later on in our conversation there is a way in which there are very strong ties to islam right where you yeah. have certain ethnic groups you know claiming descent from the prophet right um you know islam entering you know, the kind of region now known as the Sudan as early as the 11th century, right? Um, and so there are ways in which um, I would argue, right, that the two kind of most powerful kind of cultural frameworks in the Sudan um, continue to be Arabism and Islam, right? Borrowing from my... Uh own personal life and also several episodes that we've done uh, on the Middle East and Iran in particular. I want to ask you about the Kush kingdoms uh, that existed in um, the Sudan uh, and also Nubians. When you look at the history of a country like Iran, there's there may be some parallels, you know, the history of Islam leading towards the world of uh, Arabs. Uh, was very strong, uh, and for many different reasons, uh, Iran stayed separate. When you speak to an Iranian, they may sort of see their roots more in the Persian culture and Persian empires. Uh, maybe the ruling class of the Islamic Republic may have different ideas. So going back again to what I just shared with you, Kush and Nubian kingdoms, which were pre-Islam, is there such a thing in Sudan where they say, no, our, our lineage actually, our heritage goes back to the Kush kingdoms and, 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 and Nubians? Is there sort of a conflict between these two narratives? So there is, and it's a very fascinating um, phenomenon, right? Because to your point, right, Nubia and Kush far outdate, right, the introduction of Islam. Into exactly. Sudan, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, we know that Kush really emerges as early as the third millennium BCE, 
So we're talking about <laughs> wow. at least 2,600 years before um, the introduction of Islam, right? Yeah. Um, it's really complicated because um, what on one hand, right, um, right, Nubia and Kush might represent a kind of uniquely Sudanese heritage outside of a traditional Islamic framework. Yeah. And so what we've seen um, and what one of my um, colleagues at the University of Virginia, Noah Salomon, has found is that since the fall of Omar al-Bashir, which I'm sure um, we will get to, but since 2019, you have had certain Sudanese civilians who are kind of increasingly appropriating Kush as a part of kind of popular Sudanese nationalism in interesting the very violent islamization projects of dictators like Omar al-Bashir right so interesting. it's not that people are disavowing islam right yeah, altogether yeah, yeah, yeah. but they are disavowing the kind of violent government sponsored sanctioned you know islamizing projects and saying look sudan right as you know our heritage runs much deeper than you know the kind of you know dare we say public project if you will of religious nationalism that has yeah. been so divisive in modern sudanese history right um so i think that we're kind of entering a really interesting period in sudanese nationalism where these invocations of nubia and kush um continue to come up what's really fascinating though and this speaks to how history can be kind of remade and refashioned for political purposes is that kush has been increasingly appropriated in south sudan which is beyond oh. Oh. what the literal borders of ancient Kush were, right? Oh, that's wild. So it wasn't Kush even there. A very central part in South Sudanese nationalism, um, which um, I talk about in my first book. Um, and so that's been really fascinating because, you know, it would, it in some ways, right, you know, some might say parallels the way in which you know, certain um, American nationalists throughout this country's history have looked to, you know, ancient Greece and ancient Rome, right? These kind of, you know, predecessors of what it means yeah. to be democratic, despite the fact that, you know, Sophocles never set foot in Virginia, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, so there's a way in which South Sudan is very proud and the original draft national anthem of South Sudan, which was rejected, but the original national anthem was called the Land of Kush. Oh, I love it. And Kush boundaries didn't even reach up. Um, we're going to get to South Sudan. Um, as you and I uh, communicated prior to this conversation, I have a whole segment on it. Uh, mm -hmm. in, in, in the minutes that we have left of this segment, uh, sure. Dr. Townsville, um, I came across this interesting uh uh, story. I just wanted to confirm it with you. In the kingdoms of Kush and the Nubian kingdoms, were they matrilineal dynasties? So that's the thing, right? Um, 
it we what we know right um you know thanks to historians like michael gomez um tara gellner right is that within nubia we know that women played a very important role right um is this pre-islam uh correct yes yeah um that they became members of the egyptian royal house right um and that they commanded power as both queen mothers and royal wives wow um and that they even occasionally at times co-ruled with their husbands right um in terms of you know did women you know in kind of ancient nubia have a right to education and property ownership um there's a scholar by the name of jackie phillips who has said that unfortunately very little is known about women at the elite level and that non-elites are virtually absent, right? Yeah. Um, but we do know, however, that women played a strong role in religious life, um, that they were allowed to speak freely, um, that they were buried in the same cemeteries as men, right? Um, and so the kind of archaeological record at least suggests, right, that there were kind of spaces of life where there was relative gender equality. Um, but that being said, um, yeah, it's um, it is tough for me to answer. No, you answered it perfectly. I, that was very uh, um, informative for us. We'll be back after a short break to talk about Islam and the British rule in Sudan. We'll be right back. Back in 2021, when civil war broke out in Ethiopia, I spoke to Dr. Itana Dinka in Season 1, Episode 28. From his perspective, Ethiopia's bloody civil war then was completely avoidable, and he explains why. In addition, he tells us the proud history of his homeland's ability to repel the Italian invaders and colonizers in the 19th century, and in so succeeding, Ethiopia achieved what many other African nations in the 19th century coveted, which was independence from European colonizers. But here's the thing. After defeating the Italian colonizers, Ethiopia itself became a colonizer of other African nations. The link to this fascinating conversation is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Townsville about the Sudan. Dr. Townsville, I want to fast forward in history and get into the late 1700s, uh, 1800s. You talked about Sunni Islam. So let's get into it. Who are the Mahdis? And when you listen to English speakers, I think they call it Mahdist or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so in Sudan, there is perhaps no name that is more associated with political power than the Mahdis, right? Oh, wow. Um, they are the Kennedys, they are the Clintons, they are the Bushes, they are the Washingtons, they are wow. the family, right? And this all traces back to um, kind of the person who was known as the father of Sudanese nationalism, the Mahdi himself, um, Muhammad Ahmed. So in the 1800s, what is today the Sudan was a virtual Egyptian colony. Right. Um, in 1821, 
um, Muhammad Ali, who is the second most famous Muhammad Ali in history. Um, but <laughs> Muhammad Ali, who was the Ottoman viceroy of Egypt, basically conquers the Sudan in pursuit of a slave army, right? And so Sudan is ruled by this Ottoman Egyptian administration from 1821 until 1885. And the reason why it ends in 1885 is because this Sufi cleric in the Sudan known as Muhammad Ahmed publicly proclaims himself to be the Islamic long-awaited messianic figure, the Mahdi, right, who will basically rise up and bring, you know, order out of chaos and will kind of restore, you know, a true vision of Islamic society, right? He declared that the Ottoman Egyptian administration in Egypt was corrupt and that he would basically free these Sudanese um, from this colonial bondage. If I may interrupt you for one moment, please. Sure. Um, I'm familiar with the term Mahdi or Mahdi as, as they pronounce it in English. But that's the 12th Imam of the Shi'i sect of Islam. Uh, but Sudan is very much a Sunni country. Exactly. So, yeah. So explain that, please. Exactly. No. So um, you, you are exactly right, right? And that the Mahdi or that this term Mahdi, which means divinely guided one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is kind of very uh, closely connected with Shia Islam as opposed to Sunni Islam, right? And in yeah. Shia Islam, right, um, it has come to denote a kind of messianic person, right, whose presence will bring in, you know, this era of justice, right, yeah. before the end of time, right? So it's very much a kind of millenarian um, aspect as well, right? Yeah. But we know, right, that there have been a plethora of people throughout Islamic history who have claimed this title. Right? I see. So it, it, it's not exclusive late in the later centuries to Shiaism. Exactly. And I by see. the end of the 19th century, right? So by the end of the 1800s, when French and British colonialism is really kind of rapidly expanding in predominantly Islamic lands, right? Whether we're talking about Sudan, Syria, Egypt, right? Um, we know that there were modest revolts that were very common, right? And so- Oh, I didn't know that. Interesting. That in Sudan was only one of several, right? I see. Um, I see. And so one could say then that despite the fact that kind of from a purely religious standpoint, the term Mahdi is, um, as you say, connected with Shia Islam, that- the kind of meaning of the term has expanded. Yeah, right? that makes sense. Um, so, yeah. Um, going back to 1885, later 19th century, mm -hmm. um, I want to use a phrase uh, that you used to explain um, this era. You said virtual Egyptian colony, <laughs> which kind of makes it a, a bit of a interesting situation. Egypt becomes a colony of Britain, which makes Sudan, if I if I'm explaining this correctly, a colony of a colony. Exactly right. And so, <laughs> How does that work? 
Yeah. So it's really weird. Um, so in 1885, the Mahdist successfully expel this Turco-Egyptian administration, but then it is reconquered by the Union Jack in 1898. And the reason why the British were so interested um, not only is because some of the world's best cotton is grown in the Sudan, and so there was absolutely oh. a kind of economic um, yeah, impact. yeah, yeah. But also, right, um, you know, during the scramble for Africa, um, you know, there was very much a kind of, there was very much a concern within kind of British imperial Christendom that Islam was Christendom's primary foe, right? And Sudan, I have often ah. said, you know, and this might be, controversial but i think it works at least as a kind of pop culture reference the sudanese mahdi was in some ways the late victorian version of osama bin laden and ah. that's me saying that the mahdi was a you know murderous terrorist or anything like that what i am saying is that the sudanese mahdi became the face for the victorian imagination of violent, dark Islam, you know, the kind of um, counter to the civilizing light, right? And the gospel and, you know, purity and empire. And so there is a massive British invasion and, you know, revenge taken for the death of Charles Gordon, right? This famous British soldier hero who was beheaded by you know, the modest um, in 1885. And so um, a young war correspondent by the name of Winston Churchill Come <laughs> on. anticipates yes, oh, boy. In, in the reconquering of the Sudan. Um, and so basically Sudan for about 55 years. So from 1898 until 1956 is known as the Anglo-Egyptian condominium. Right. It's this really I mean, say that again, condominium like a building. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> and so what that basically meant is that to your point, Sudan was at least nominally speaking, still a protectorate of Egypt, but Egypt was a protectorate of Great Britain, right? And so what happens is that Sudan is a condominium to this day, if you you know, want to basically research the history of early 20th century Sudan, you don't go to the colonial office. You have to go to the foreign office in London. So this kind of like singular designation um, within the empire where, as it has been said, Egypt paid, England ruled. <laughs> so for all intents and purposes, Sudan was actually a colony but oh, categorization yes. was a colony of a colony hence its records were within the foreign office not in the colonial exactly <laughs> yeah semantics and winston churchill is involved in this i mean as a yes. young man a young winston yeah um, at the top of our segment when i asked you about mahdi's you said, you know, they're like the Clintons and the Kennedys and the Washingtons and all of that. You you named several um, political families 
uh, known figures in our history. Does that mean the Mahdi's, uh, Mahdi's had several generations of um, rulers or at least uh, impactful uh, people in Sudan's history? Yes. So um, the one of the Mahdi's sons, and he had many sons, but one of the Mahdi's sons um, becomes in the mid 20th century, the leader of one of the primary Sudanese nationalist parties known as the Uma party, U-M-M-A. Um, Uma being the people. Uh, yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, and then one of the Mahdi's, I believe either grandsons or great grandsons, Sadiq al-Mahdi, um, becomes a very prominent um, Sudanese prime minister in the 1980s. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, yeah. So for, you know, a roughly 100 year period, right, um, the al-Mahdi's were very much um, kind of the name was golden. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know if it's that way today. Certainly, you know, because of the, you know, recently concluded Bashir um, yeah. dictatorship, you know, um, things are a bit different now. But that's just to say that um, the Mahdi name, right? It was yeah. it was very noble. Um, and what's even, you know, as an interesting story, um, when George the Sixth, right, um, who was the father of the recently deceased Queen Elizabeth. Um, when George VI is coronated, um, one of the Mahdi's sons actually sends a sword as a coronation gift and as a sign of, you know, we used to have really bad relations, but now we have goodwill. And so, you know, we are presenting this sword as a, you know, God bless you, you know, King Regnant George the the uh, the sixth. Um, so I don't know where that sword is held, um, but I'm sure it is somewhere, um, maybe in Windsor Castle or one of know, the palaces. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Uh, my family and I were just in England, and we saw the family jewels. Um, we didn't come across oh, nice. that sword. Okay. Yeah, but maybe in one of the many palaces. <laughs> right, right. We'll be back after a short break to talk about South Sudan. We'll be right back. Hey there, news peelers. We're working on a brand new website with many super duper features, including videos of our guests and compilations of our episodes into series with related blogs that are updated weekly, like series on US politics, economy, health policies, environment, women's rights, and also series on many other countries like Russia, Ukraine, China, and Brazil, and the British monarchy, and also a series on revolutions and protests like those in Iran, Israel, and France. So be sure to check it out at historybehindnews.com. See you guys there. Dr. Townsell, let's talk about your recent book published in 2021, the title of which is Chosen Peoples, Christianity and Political Imagination in South Sudan. I want to hear about this book, and maybe I'll get you started with this question. Why do you say political imagination? Absolutely. Um, so Chosen Peoples is really about the ways in which people within South Sudan, both, you know, lay people, ordained men, women, literate, illiterate, right? 
approached Judeo-Christian scriptures, right, the Old and New Testaments, to kind of provide them a vocabulary of resistance against the Sudanese state, right? People who kind of mined Christian scriptures to kind of say, hey, our, you know, fight for freedom and liberation is divinely sanctioned. And so by political imagination, I'm really talking about people who didn't necessarily read the Bible in a partisan way, but read it politically, right? People who Interesting. understood that to identify as a Christian publicly in this particular post-colonial Sudanese context means something that is very political, right? It doesn't just mean that I attend church on Sunday, that you know I don't pray five times a day. It means that I am in a kind of existential, um, irreconcilable conflict against a regime that wants to publicly frame itself as an Islamic state and is willing to do so to the lengths of closing down Christian schools, um, you know, violent forced conversions. Um, and so by political imagination, I'm really talking about um, a kind of very political way of what it meant to imagine someone as someone who was a child of God, right? To say that I am particularly beloved of God. And because of that, I have a kind of providential um, sponsorship behind my political cause. So how far back in history does this profound belief, this sense of distinction from the rest of Sudan go? Is this like a 20th century thing or do we? Yes, um, it is a 20th century phenomenon. Um, so the book really starts right after the British established hegemony in Sudan in the late 1800s. Um, in a similar way that Egypt was known to have a kind of hegemonic role in the Sudan, we know that historically northern Sudanese tended to raid the margins of Sudan, both to the west in places like Darfur, but also way further down south into Central Africa for enslaved people. Right? Wow, that's far. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so during the colonial period within the Sudan, most of the colonial power was headquartered in the north, in Khartoum. So Khartoum was like the, you know, Washington, D.C., if you will, yeah. of the colonial Sudanese state, right? That's where most of the infrastructure was. That's where the best schools were. That's where the elites could get white-collar jobs, right? Meanwhile, hundreds of miles down south, the colonial administration basically um, delegated educational responsibilities to lower-funded Christian missionaries, Right. So basically someone in, you know, it, it would almost be akin to if we think about in the U.S. context, you know, the person growing up in 1920s Mississippi who lives way out in the boondocks and the, you know, types of schools that may have been out there compared to those 
in town, right? This kind of town and country yeah, um, yeah. divide, right? And so over the course of the colonial period, Northern Sudanese enjoyed certain social and economic advantages politically over their South Sudanese counterparts. Um, and this breeds a lot of resentment, right? And a lot of fear by the mid 1950s among South Sudanese that once Sudan becomes independent, these Northern Sudanese Muslims are going to be in power and are going to try to basically hoard national power amongst themselves while we Black, relatively poor, relatively less educated, but Christian South Sudanese are going to be at the margins. Wow. Um, let me digest that for a second. Going sure, back sure. to the early 20th century, mm -hmm. late 1800s, late 19th century. So by what you just described, if Christian missionaries were sort of invited, hey, go to the to South Sudan, southern parts of the Sudan, and mm -hmm. you take care of the education. We're not interested. We want to create administrators up in Khartoum. Exactly. So missionaries have sort of a free hand to also create a distinct culture that is welcome for many different reasons, practical education and perhaps administrative and also religious kinship between them as Christian missionaries and Christian South Sudan. So a separate culture is reinforced in South Sudan. Is that correct? Exactly. And this culture, ah. I mean, it's crazy what the what the colonial administration literally does in 1930 is to enact what has been known as the Southern policy. And the Southern policy set in motion legally prohibitions where Southerners and Northerners could not freely travel between North and South without permission, right? And so they really tried to create within the South a kind of separate administrative structure, right? Um, these, but, but wait a minute, uh, if I may interrupt you, please. Sure. You said 1930, I think. Um, in 1930, Sudan was still part of the British Empire. Exactly. So the British are doing this. They're actually creating two distinct uh, administrative areas. Yes. And the reason why, right, and this is where kind of, I think, um, religious I politics sometimes hides in plain sight, that there was concern among the British administration that Islam had to be, quote unquote, contained, right? That Islam had, an, you know, an almost thousand year history in northern Sudan but had a very small presence in southern Sudan. And so they were very keen oh, on wow. basically artificially containing, you know, the Muslim demographic within northern Sudan, right? So what they do is say, look, this is a single Sudanese colony, but we're really going to kind of create within southern Sudan a kind of buffer zone, right? <laughs> so that places like Kenya and Uganda, you know, and Tanzania can be quote unquote protected from Islam. 
And so crazy. I mean, yeah. that that sows the seeds of this separation in 2000. Exactly. Exactly. Because then after World War II, right, when the kind of, you know, um, the avalanche of decolonization begins and it's clear yeah. that, you know, this thing called colonialism is now no longer going to be accepted because we just fought this war against, you know, Nazism and fascism and stuff um and so when in 1947 there is a conference and it is decided that when sudan someday one day becomes independent it's not going to be as two two countries right it's not going to be as northern sudan and south sudan but it's going to be as one sudanese state ruled from the north in khartoum you have a lot of Southerners as early as the 1940s beginning to be like, we're not down with this, right? <laughs> we, we are yeah. a separate people from the North. And by 1955, right, you have revolution within the South, which really sets the tone for the next 50 years for the, um, wow. the very bloody civil wars, which would ensue. Um, going back to independence of Sudan from British uh, um, Empire, uh, what year did that take place? 1950. So uh, on January the first, 1956. Yeah. Okay, 1956. Uh, you talk about earlier. You mentioned uh, how South Sudanese feared that North Sudanese would. Forced conversion; they would shut down uh, Christian schools. Did that happen? Actually, it did. Oh wow! Um, so, so post post independence, yes. So after Sudan becomes independent in 1956, you have a series of policies, you know, collectively known as Arabization and Islamization, and what this practically looked like on the ground was the government saying, look, we're going to have a single educational system. And so therefore, schools that used to be missionary schools are now going to be public schools. Right? Yeah. Um, the language that will now be instructed from the elementary level up is going to be Arabic, right? And Quran, or sorry, the Quran is going to be the kind of, you know, textbook, right? Um, practically speaking, there was a protest after Friday replaced to Sunday as the weekly holiday, right? Yeah, Friday so is the day of prayer in Islam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, right? So it was in kind of the strategy was in some ways, I think, very... Um, what word am I trying to, it was very much done in a way that did not appear overtly violent, right? So it did not start with, you know, armed soldiers burning churches and things like that, right? It was yeah, yeah. much more of an administrative policy, right? They were subtly chipping away exactly. at their freedom and suppressing their ways of life and creed. The kind of one step that really ignited the conflagration was when in 1964 
the Sudanese government expelled 300 foreign missionaries from the country. And so this got, you know, world headlines and things like that. Um, And so, yeah. All of this sort of, all of this discussion about South Sudan and its administrative uh, separation from northern parts of Sudan, sort of all this conversation converges into the following question that now that South Sudan is a Christian nation and everyone, I suppose everyone is Christian. Yeah, it's about, yeah, it's a, it's the single largest faith group. Um, over 60% of the country identifies as Christian. Yep. 60%. Okay. So it's not like 85% or 90%. But anyway, now that is dominantly Christian, is everything fine? Is it going well? Ooh, great question. I had to ask that question. Yeah. We, we led up to it no, in all of our conversation. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I'll answer it in this way. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Ridley Scott movie Exodus, Gods and Kings. Which no, is, I have not. Is, yes. So it's his kind of Hollywood adaptation of the Exodus um story and so there is this one scene in the movie which i think perfectly maps on to your question in terms of how are things in south sudan now right that it's independent that it's a majority christian country that they no longer have to you know worry about you know religious discrimination right there's this scene where right after the children of israel have crossed the red sea right they're no longer in egypt they're now free in Canaan, right, where Joshua and Moses are talking. And Joshua's like, look, you know, we're this huge band of tribes. Like, we're God's chosen people. We're good now. And then Moses looks at him and says, but what happens when we stop running, right? And I think that this is the <laughs> the existential question that South Sudan has had since it became its own independent state, right? The world's newest state in 2011, which is to say that for 50 years, the national project was built upon liberation from the North, right? So long as we can create our own independent South Sudan, right? That was the kind of binding glue, Right. But once it became independence in 2011, it highlighted the fact that everyone was not knit together in the way that they thought, right? There were ethnic divisions and tribalism, right? Um, you had elites and subalterns, right? Um and so South Sudan actually explodes into its own civil war. Oh, in wow. 2013, right? Between the largest ethnic group, the the um, the Dinka, and the second largest ethnic group, the Nur, right? And these kind of oh, ethnic wow. differences were um, even made more violent because, of course, the president was Dinka, the vice president was Nur. Oh my goodness! Um, and so you have a five-year conflict. Famine, thousands of people dead, refugee crisis, you know, all of the kind of accoutrement, if you will, of modern civil conflicts, right? Um, what a terrible conflict. twist. 
Yes. Yeah. And it's one that I was in grad school during this time. So imagine writing your PhD dissertation in, you know, 2012, 2013, <laughs> expecting a kind of, you know, happily ever after. And then as you're writing your last <laughs> chapter, oh, no, you know, like everything that. So um, I literally had to um, the fifth chapter of my book would have been impossible if, if I had, you know, completed it in, you know, mid 2013. Right. So this is kind of one of those examples where, you know, writing history can be really tough when the history is still evolving, right? In, like, in ways that you would not have imagined <laughs> otherwise. Exactly, right? Like, you know, like, like imagine someone writing um, the history of, you know, I don't know, the civil right or someone writing the history of Black Lives Matter and then 2020 happens, Pandemic, right. yeah, and like the yeah. whole thing would be so <laughs> it just changes as well. That's wow. kind of what happened. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Townsville as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Townsville, in the last segment, you mentioned your PhD dissertation and the curveball you were was that was thrown at you, um, which made me think of a project that you're working on right now. Uh, it's an upcoming book, and it's titled "Bounds of Blackness: African American Sudan and the Politics of Solidarity." Tell us about this project, please. Yes, so I am so so excited about this book, and you are actually the first person on a podcast that I'm able to talk about it with. So I'm honored. Um, yeah. So what was really fascinating during my research for the first book were the ways in which African Americans would show up in the archive, right? Hmm. Where you have people talking about lynching going on in the South. You've got invocations of Black Power and Dr. King. Um, Malcolm X famously um, makes a trip to Khartoum in the early 1960s, right? Um, Al Sharpton um, travels to the in uh, the early 2000s. And so as an African-American myself, I was really kind of intrigued and wondered, well, I can't be the only African-American in the history of African-Americans to be interested in the Sudan, right? Like, whose shoulders am I standing on top of? You know, who yeah. are my kind of, you know, um, Sudan-minded African-American antecedents? Yeah. And so that was really the kind of germinating seed um, that really developed into this book where um going back to intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois and Langston Hughes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just seeing kind of the cultural status that Sudan has long had in the African American imagination, but really going to the present day. Um 
we talked about, right, Kush and Nubia, right? Yeah, yeah. These were ancient civilizations that Black people in this country really look to as examples of, look, we come from kings and queens, right? We have royal blood, right? We are not people, sharecroppers, right? Um, so that's really what the book is about, right? It's kind of a transnational political and cultural history of African-American engagements with the Sudan going from, you know, the late 1800s, right, where you had Black newspapers reporting on the Mahdi, right, and some even wow. praising the Mahdi, right, as this kind of anti-colonial figure who was really yeah. sticking it to the Union Jack, <laughs> right, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but going all the way to the present day, right, where the first U.S. ambassador to South Sudan is an African-American woman from the Chicago suburbs, right? Um, and so it's just this awesome history. I'm so excited to share it with the world, and it should be out um, definitely by this time next year, um, but the spring of 2024. Well, well, I'm very happy that you gave us a preview of it. I was going to ask a question, which I think you answered. Um, the the African Americans that you identified, uh, uh, Malcolm X. Did you did you say Dr. King also went there? Yes. Doc, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, MLK, Al Sharpton. Uh, they're all Christian. Yet Sudan, at, at the time that any of these individuals went there, was decidedly very much an Islamic country. So I was going to tell you. I was going to ask. What is the attraction? Why Sudan? Why not many other sure. uh, countries in Africa that are, in fact, Christian? And I think you answered it. It's because of its heritage to the Kush kingdoms and Nubian kingdoms, this foundation that we come from well-established uh, kingdoms and empires. That's really fascinating. Did I get that right? Well, well, so, and the reason why it's the politics of solidarity, right, is because in some ways, what my book shows is that there's a kind of selective picking and choosing, right? So Sudan is black when it represents Kush and Nubia, yeah. you know, royalty. But then how do we deal with like Darfur, right? When you have the Sudanese government sponsoring the slaughter of millions of people in Darfur, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. what do we do with someone like Omar al-Bashir, right? Who, yeah. you know, is indicted by the ICC. And so what my book shows, right, is that there is a way in which religion has both strengthened and undermined this idea of a kind of transnational Black solidarity, because yeah, Al Sharpton went to Sudan, but he went to South Sudan. Louis Farrakhan, however, Interesting. the head of the Nation <laughs> of Islam, yeah. right, goes to North Sudan, Yeah, right? So there's a way in which um, African-American engagements with the Sudan have shown both the potential, but also the contradictions, right? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and think, you know, I closed the book by saying, right, or by kind of asking this question, you know, when someone says Black Lives Matter, right, we need to interrogate which Black lives are being emphasized, right, and which Black lives are being kind of on the margins, right? So 
you know, if someone thinks about Sudan and only thinks about Kush, well, what about the people in Sudan now? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. If someone's like really old picture of, you know, eat like if someone's lone picture of Egypt remains King Tut, Cleopatra, pyramids, and all that stuff, but they're not thinking about people, you know, struggling under, you know, Al Sisi. What are we really talking about? So, yeah. We mentioned uh, monarchy, um, Kush, and the Nubian kingdoms. And I want to uh, bring up an interesting conversation you and I had during the break. Um, I think it's, I think uh, it would be fun for our audience to listen to it too. Um, the opera Aida by Verdi, which was written for the, I think it was written for the opening of the Suez Canal back in the 1800s. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. um, in there, there's an Ethiopian princess that, that I forget how I've seen the opera twice, but I forget how it ends. I think she's, in a pyramid and where that, that's where she dies um sort of buried alive um when i saw the opera first and also the second time you, you would have think i would have researched this but this was before google i just, just mm -hmm. aged myself um mm -hmm. what i was thinking is that well this is being written by an italian in the 1800s and back then italy was interested in ethiopia to colonize it um egypt the it's big southern neighbor for hundreds and hundreds of miles was Sudan, not Ethiopia. So could it have been that this princess in the opera was actually a Sudanese princess and not an Ethiopian princess? So I also, well, I haven't seen the opera, yeah. uh, but I think that it is because of the history of Sudan's relationship with Egypt um, and the fact that at least, you know, during the kind of classical period, right, Ethiopia was meant to reflect in, you know, the ancient Greek term for Ethiopia literally meant sunburnt person. Um, and so I'm Ethiopia, sorry, say that again. <laughs> the Greek word sure, for Ethiopia meant what? Meant sunburnt person. So someone <laughs> who in kind of the ancient imaginary was of darker skin because they had more exposure to the sun. So an Ethiopian could have been someone from Tunisia, yeah, Egypt, um, Oman, right? Um, so, um, yeah, and um, to your point about kind of Italian interest um, in the Horn of Africa at the time, kind of one of those random did you knows that I'm sure you're audience would love to hear is, is that Eritrea, right, yeah, which is yeah. um, a country in the Horn of Africa, um, is actually derived from the ancient Greek term for the Red Sea. So it's one of the only countries in Africa that really Interesting. had a kind of, um, a Greek root. Yep. Interesting. So going back to Verdi's opera, this is just an interesting point. Sure, sure. Um, when Verdi wrote and and about an Ethiopian princess, one could just sort of it could have been a much wider general term that could have been yes. Sudan because when you look at the map, especially going back at that time, Egypt and Ethiopia were extremely far apart. Any military? Oh, sure, sure. Interesting. Uh, if you wanted our audience to remember just one point after everything we talked about sure. about Sudan, the Sudan, what yeah. would that be? 
The main point would be, I think that nuance is so important. And I think that, you know, the reason why podcasts like this are so needed is because I think that Sudan in the Western imagination predominantly means one thing, right? Yeah. We see death, civil wars, famine, chaos, yeah. coups, right? Sudan, like all places, is much more than that, right? It has a history. It has culture. It has nuance, right? Um, and so I would encourage people when thinking about the Sudan to not see the things going on in the country now as not real because they absolutely are real and we need to be paying attention. But to know that these people and these lands do have culture and that they are human too, and that Sudan deserves a human face because they are human. That's wonderful. Um, uh, Dr. Townsville, I should have asked you this uh, uh, before. Are you of Sudanese descent yourself? That's a great question. I am not. Um, I am an African American. Um, my mom has done the, you know, ancestry.com thing. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so I'm a mix of kind of um West African and European heritage, but um to my knowledge, I am not Sudanese. Wonderful. And West Africa and that area, the culture is so much different than Sudan. Oh, yeah. And this is something that's your passion and interest. That's what you got into it. Dr. Townsville, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. You too. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.